This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host an annual conference, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. David Snarch. David is a licensed clinical psychologist, a certified sex therapist, and a clinical member of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. David Snarch is the author of a new book, Intimacy and Desire, as well as the book Passionate Marriage, Resurrecting Sex, and Constructing the Sexual Crucible. With Sounds True, David has released a two-session audio program called Secrets of a Passionate Marriage, How to Increase Sexual Pleasure and Emotional Fulfillment in Committed Relationships, a program which shares a revolutionary approach thousands have used to take their relationships to new and lasting heights of sexual ecstasy and intimacy. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, David and I spoke about the relationship between differentiation and sexual satisfaction in committed relationships. We also talked about the four drives of sexual desire, what David means by the word integrity and its importance in a healthy relationship, and what it might mean to hold on to yourself in relationship. Here's my very helpful and provocative conversation with Dr. David Snarch. David, in your work on passionate marriage, you talk about the cornerstone of a passionate marriage is something you call differentiation. And so I want to start right there, right in the heart of your work. What do you mean Mm -hmm. by differentiation? Well, differentiation is a phenomenon that applies to all living things, but in human beings, differentiation is basically the, ba- the ability to balance humankind's two most fundamental drives. One is our urge to be connected with other people, and the other is the urge to be free and to be autonomous and direct the course of our own life. And so both wanting to be in a relationship and wanting to be our own person are the two fundamental drives and the two fundamental problems that couples have in emotionally committed relationships. So differentiation is the ability to have both, to be both very much involved in a relationship and also be able to be your own person within that relationship. And when you can do that, you basically have the best of both worlds, including the kind of relationship everybody wants to have. Okay, okay. Is it actually possible to have both? Uh, If it's not, you're going to be a hurting kitten. Uh, That is uh, uh, absolutely possible. But it's possible at at a level of development, so just like, you know, you can have pedestrian spirituality or you could have a much more mature, robust spirituality, the same thing's true about personal development. And so people have relationships at the level of their own development, the same way everybody has sex at their own level of sexual development. So it's not about learning an idea or learning a new technique like communication skills But if you use the natural processes of emotionally committed relationships to grow yourself up, then absolutely you are quite capable of having both an intense, satisfying relationship and also being your own person within that relationship. Okay, so a couple comes to you. Do you have certain litmus tests where you can see what level of differentiation they have in their relationship? How can you tell? Well, it's not that hard. Uh, For instance, 
differentiation is an abstract concept, and uh, I know that when you start talking about that, people scratch their head, and when I do interviews with reporters and I talk about differentiation, you can watch their eyes glaze over, you know, and they're saying, explain to me in 30 words how I can tell my public how your approach is different. So what we have done is operationalize differentiation into four basic human uniquely human abilities. We call these the four points of balance, the crucible four points of balance, and they're written for the first time, actually, in my latest book, Intimacy and Desire. The four points of balance, which is our way of looking at differentiation, are what we call solid, flexible self, which is the first one, the ability to have solid values that you can both hang on to and also change over time. The second one is called quiet mind and calm heart, which is the ability to contain your anxiety and not let your feelings overwhelm you and take care of your own self emotionally. Third point of balance is called grounded responding, which is not overreacting to other people's overreactions. And the fourth point of balance is called meaningful endurance, the willingness to tolerate discomfort for growth. And so when a couple comes in, I will assess them across these four basic points and get some idea about where they are in their level of development. And also, uh, one of the um, interesting things about differentiation is that uh, if people are together for any length of time, they are at the same level of differentiation. You don't find couples that are together for some time that are remarkably mismatched. So by pegging one person, you very often can get a very good assessment about the differentiation level of the partner, and that's the differentiation level of the relationship. So it's done in a fairly pragmatic, straight forward way. Okay, and just clarification about the very first point you mentioned, having a solid and flexible self. What do you mean by that, solid and flexible? Yeah, see, that that catches a lot of people because uh, most of us don't understand what solid is. Solid is, on the one hand, the ability to hang on to a set of core values and not be swayed simply by circumstance. But the other part is that people who really have a solid sense of self can change over time. They can change those values when it's appropriate, but they don't do it with pressure from the outside. They do it from the inside, and it's a very determined decision. And so the hallmark of a well-developed person is not only a person who can stand on their own against pressure to conform, and at the same time, they can flex and bend when circumstances determine that. Uh, anybody who knows anything about Buddhism, you know, it talks about flexibility being the strength. And so uh, a human being, a real human being, a uh, well-developed human being, has both the ability to transcend circumstances and maintain that core, and at the same time, the ability to change. So somebody who's screaming, don't tell me what I know what's right and wrong, and somebody who never changes their values, that's rigidity. And the hallmark of a well-differentiated person is not like a knight in armor clanking around where they're in this kind of carpus where they can't move or change. Like a lobster, basically it is the ability to be flexible over time. Okay, and now here's the really critical question, I think, for this work on passionate marriage. What's the connection between a couple's level of differentiation and the level of hot sex they're having or not having? Well, that's a really, really good question, and that's the one that I think really attracts so many people to the approach. That's not just theory, but it gets to be very pragmatic. To really understand the connection, you have to understand the natural ecology of sexual relationships. Sex is not simply a collection of techniques or values. It turns out when two people come together and have a sexual relationship on an ongoing basis, there are ecological rules that are as built in as the rules of world ecology. It's not just that we can come together and do whatever we want in relationships. When humans form relationships, there are rules. And so, for instance, uh, one rule in emotionally committed relationships is that sexual relationships always consist of leftovers. You get to do what you don't want to do. Rather, you get to decide what you don't want to do. I get to decide what I don't want to do, and we do what's ever left over. 
That's why sexual relationships always consist of leftovers. This is absolutely normal. And what happens that people don't realize is sexual boredom is built into ongoing relationships for just that reason. Because regardless of how sexually developed you and I are, if we do the same thing over and over again for five years, we are going to be bored out of our minds. And so human beings both like monogamy, but they also like sexual variety. And the way that you get that without having affairs or breaking up your relationships is you have to expand your sexual repertoire. But the elegance of the grand design, the sort of the great oneness showing up inside our relationships, is because we've gone through this sex always consists of leftovers routine. The only way that you can now have a vibrant sexual relationship is a couple of things. Number one, you got to do something new, and that means regardless of what it's going to be, it's going to be outside both our comfort zones because we went through that initial process. And the other part is when one of us suggests something new, your partner is not going to say, that's a wonderful idea. Thanks for sharing. Let's go rip off our clothes and do it. Your partner is more likely to say, that's a disgusting thing to do because you're taking them outside their comfort zone. And so all of a sudden, the four points of balance come into play right there in simply curing sexual boredom, which we all have to do. You have to have a set of values. You can't overreact to your partner. You've got to take care of your own heart because people say difficult things when they're uncomfortable. And you have to have meaningful endurance. And so now, if we're going to keep hot sex alive in our relationship, presuming we had it to begin with, we're going to have to apply the four points of balance. And if you and I are poorly differentiated, meaning we have weak four points of balance, we're going to bog down like many, many couples do, and uh, we're going to start taking the fact that we don't have good sex personally. We're going to begin to tell ourselves common but wrong ideas like the chemistry is gone or we've fallen out of love or we're sexually incompatible. And so if that's the case and we're poorly differentiated, we're not only going to get our feelings hurt, we're going to withdraw from each other, we're going to have a lousy relationship, presuming we stay together, or by doing things that you're not used to that seem to be not you yet because they're not part of your sexual identity, it means you're going to challenge the first point of balance about flexibility. You're going to challenge the second point of balance about keeping your anxiety under control. And you also got the third point of balance. We can't be overreacting to each other. And we need the fourth point of balance because we've got to hang in there and we've got to go through some uncomfortable times to get where we want to go. And so it's not only the case that better differentiated people handle this process better, but the elegance of the great design is that this is how poorly differentiated people become well-differentiated people. You don't do it by going to a monastery or by taking a course in sex. You do it by getting into a relationship and going through this incredible developmental process that is built into all emotionally committed relationships. And so the process of taking our relationship from boring sex to the one where we're so happy we stayed together because we're having better sex than ever before is the natural way that nature helps us all become more differentiated. So when you begin to think of uh, that, that sex and differentiation and the development of the self and the human brain are all inextricably in, 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 entwined, I, I thought that this was an incredible idea. This is what made me take the next step beyond passionate marriage and write the latest book, Intimacy and Desire. But it's perfectly consistent with passionate marriage, and it's still amazing to me that it, everything that we wrote about and talked about in passionate marriage and in the secrets of a passionate marriage tape, we still hold true to today. We've just built on it, but that is really the core of the approach. Okay, there's so many questions that I have here, but I'm going to try to just hit it very succinctly. You said okay. human beings like monogamy. And I had a moment there where I thought, well, is that true? I mean, I like monogamy, but I certainly know a lot of people who wouldn't say that. Um, uh, well, when we're talking about human beings, uh, we're, we're not talking about your opinion or my opinion. You know, we're talking about 
about you know a hundred mil uh, rather a million years of human evolution we're talking about two thousand years of civilization and if you look over from an anthropological and a sociological view it is very clear that the basic human mating strategy is serial monogamy plus affairs that's it that's not really disputable now, whether or not uh, uh, people are going to say that they like monogamy, that, that's a different issue, but there is enough of us that like it enough that pair bonding is one of the basic characteristics of human relationships. Why is it in your work that you've decided to focus on increasing sexual pleasure and fulfillment in committed relationships versus looking at it just in sexual interactions in an open way? Well, because sex always occurs in the context of a relationship. There is no such thing as non-relational sex to a human being. That doesn't make any difference if we're talking about a one-night stand or we're talking about you masturbating. When people masturbate, they're having a relationship usually with somebody in their head, maybe a brief encounter, but it's still inherently relational because the human self is basically relational and the human self which emerged about 1.7 million years ago emerged at the same time that human sexual desire was developing so selfhood relationships with other people and sexual desire are basically almost one and the same they're so intrinsically intertwined so that's why i started working with sex and relationships but another reason I started working about sex in committed relationships is because the more I did work with couples, the more I saw that really emotionally committed relationships, particularly when it comes to sex, relationships are people growing machines. And so I started seeing more than just people having whoop-de-doo sex or just, you know, sex to the point that it was sort of transcendent. What I saw was that by couples going through the problems that they were having, which were sort of their worst nightmare, that is how they became more evolved. And as they became more evolved, their, both their sexuality and their spirituality became more involved. And the more I saw that, um, it was something that just so knocked me out. I wanted to be part of it. So we developed an approach that lines up with the natural way that emotionally committed works. And that's why the approach is not only so uh, powerful, but also so successful. <clears throat> so now Passionate Marriage is an international bestseller. And basically, it transcends culture, it transcends sexual orientation, transcends race and religion. And when you find something that works that broadly distributed, that you're going down into the very core of how humans relate to each other um, and how we fall in love, um, I wanted to uh, line up with that. And so that's why I work with couples in committed relationships. We, we don't take a stand and say one-night stands are bad by any stretch of the imagination. We're not in the morality business, but we do found that by helping people grow themselves up with sex, they do develop more as moral people. Okay, so I know you've worked with hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, I don't know how many couples who have come to mm -hmm. you and have said, you know, we have this challenge or issue in our sexual yeah. relationship. We want to go deeper. Mm -hmm. We're not having as much sex as we want. One partner wants more sex than the other. And I'm curious, do you ever find couples and you just think, well, you know, these people really are just sexually incompatible. It just it doesn't work. Or is there always a chance if people are willing to engage in this type of growth that you're describing that their sex life can become fulfilling? Well, well let's, do, let's do that in two steps. Number one, let's broaden out the kind of people that I get to see so that uh, the listening audience will also understand the real uh, meaning of the answer that, that I'm going to give you. Uh, we not only see couples who are dissatisfied with their sex, meaning they wish that they had more sex, uh, 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 it's not as frequent as enough, it's not erotic enough. Uh, we see lots of people uh, that have not had sex in 20 years. I worked with a couple last week where the man had rapid orgasm for 25 years. 
And um, when you have things going on that long, it is no longer simply in your bedroom. It is now permeating all aspects of your relationship. And people take bad sex very, very personally and get their feelings hurt. So a lot of the people that I see, they're on the verge of divorce. Some of them have already signed the divorce decree. So um, you really need to understand the severity of the people that we work with here. We do a fly-in four-day therapy program that people fly in from around the world to get this approach. And So most of the people we see have failed in therapy three and four times because Evergreen, Colorado is not generally on your way home. Having said that, no, I don't see couples that I say to myself, uh, uh, these people are sexually incompatible or uh, these people really ought to just bag it and get divorced. Um, because sexual compatibility is not what people think, number one. Number two, very often the relationships are going bad, not because they're bad relationships, but because of operator error, because people are normal because they have these normal but wrong beliefs that many people had and when you believe these things they destroy your relationship and you think it has to do with your childhood or you picked the wrong person but going back to what sexual compatibility is sexual compatibility is not finding someone who wants to do what you want to do and doesn't want to do what you don't want to do that's what you find at the beginning of the sex is going to become leftovers process. That's what you're doing there. You're, you're finding somebody who wants to do what you want to do and doesn't want to do what you don't want to do. And when you find that, you, you guys think, you know, you, you were made in heaven. But that is the recipe for the most boring sex down the road. So we teach people that real sexual compatibility is the ability to make room for each other's differences and preferences. And the ability to accommodate differences is what makes people really compatible and also makes them have lots of interesting sex. And it keeps the, the sexual relationship very broad. Both people are bringing new things in. But since most of us get our sense of reflected sense of self from our sexuality and how we look, how people respond to us and what we do and don't do sexually, it's, it's very, very rigid for most people. And so changing your sexual behavior is not like picking up a copy of the Kama Sutra. It is rooted in your guts. It belongs to your sense of identity. So people who are really sexually compatible often want different things, but they can accommodate those differences. And so if you look at that, we're talking sex now, you go back to what we were talking about earlier and go back to the four points of balance and solid, flexible self and the ability to calm your mind and calm your heart, those, you now see that those four points of balance are really the individual underpinnings of what true sexual compatibility really is. So my partner says to me, I want to try this new thing. I'm a little nervous bringing it up. I'm not quite sure how you're going to respond, but it's important to me and it's exciting to me. And so the response of someone who's well differentiated would be, I might feel the anxiety and excitement that I feel about that, but I wouldn't shut down and freak out. I would go with it and be experimental. Um, yeah, that's exactly what you would do. It doesn't mean that you're not uncomfortable, and it doesn't mean you're not anxious. That's one of the beauties of a differentiation-based approach. When, when you're doing the safety and security attachment type stuff, it sort of pictures marriages as safe wombs where you're never disturbed, you're always comfortable, and your partner never asks you to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. But reality is that there are lots of things in life that make us nervous, but the hallmark of an adult and also a good marital partner is you don't let your, ma you don't let your anxiety control you. That's the difference. And so, yes, if you and I are fairly well-differentiated people and you say to me, I'd like to try this, I might say, you know what, that makes me nervous. That really does. But um, why don't I hold on to myself while you're holding on to me and let's give this thing a go and see where it goes. And the first time around, I'm not, I'm not promising sexual Olympics or that, you know, my techniques are going to be wonderful. But um, basically, I'll take care of myself and we'll take care of each other. And uh, we can, we know we have already a good relationship. We've gone through difficult times before, the least of which is going to be in our bedroom. Let's give this thing a go. And this is what welds people together 
for life because what's also happening as we're doing this, by the way, is we're going through a time of heightened ac activation followed by a period of calm. And that is one of the seven conditions that promotes positive brain wiring. So when you and I go through this, we're not only starting to have some interesting sex, but part of the grand design is as people expand their sexual relationship, they are going to produce, without realizing it, the seven conditions that promote positive neural rewiring in the human brain, and that's how we get attached much farther and much deeper than simple oxytocin can do. Okay, now, you mentioned previously this idea that there's something in the development of the human brain over time that yeah. relates to our current desire. You know, actually, I didn't really follow what you said, so maybe you can help me understand it. Well, th th this is why I had to write Intimacy and Desire, because Intimacy and Desire is all about how the human brain evolved and the, the sense of the human self also evolved, and that now shows up in the battles that couples have in their relationships today. It's the first explanation why normal, healthy couples have sexual desire problems. So... Basically, what happens is 1.7 million years ago, as the human brain was evolving, the, the cranial capacity of the brain doubled in a very short period of time. And that's about the time that socioanthropologists think the human self emerged. Before that, there was no self. So, for instance, before 1.7 million years ago, nobody felt sexually inadequate because they didn't have enough of a self to feel sexually inadequate. And they didn't have enough of a, a self to have a reflected sense of self to start comparing their bodies to other people's bodies, which is now one of the problems that we now have because of this magnificent brain that we've, we've developed. So... Basically, that's how the human race evolved, and now this is the way that each of us in our own relationships goes through that developmental process, and it shows up in sexual desire problems. So, for instance, when couples are getting together, they never think they'll have sexual desire problems. They can't keep their hands off each other. They can't wait to talk to each other. Uh, they just delight in each other's presence. And the thought that they're going to end up like their parents is just implausible to them. And it turns out that the problem that nobody thinks they're going to have, everybody has. Everybody, every couple will eventually go through sexual desire problems because it's not about the chemistry being used up, which is a negative view. It's about how sexual relationships are people growing machines. Because what happens is shortly after you get into a relationship, and shortly can be anywhere between a couple of months to, you know, five years, what happens is we start getting into the battles of selfhood. It starts getting into why do, why do you have to have sex the way that I want? Or I start complaining, how come I have to make all the initiations? And you start talking about feeling like I'm taking you for granted and I'm not letting you be your own person because I expect sex when you don't really want it. And we also start fighting over space in the closet and whose potted plant is going to go where because our sense of self gets attached to all these different things in our house as well, and it gets attached to our sex too. And so eventually we get into emotional gridlock because our integrity goes on the line, which couples never anticipate. We feel like our sense of self is starting to diminish or disappear. We begin to feel subservient to our partner or controlled by our partner, which are all issues about selfhood. And when that happens, you can kiss sex goodbye. So traditionally, therapists have talked about three drives of sexual desire. One is lust, driven by testosterone. Another one is romantic love, driven by norepinephrine and, uh, and uh, 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 serotonin and dopamine. And the third one was attachment, driven by oxytocin and vasopressin. But more recently, I've proposed that there's actually a fourth drive of sexual desire, and that fourth drive is more powerful than the other three combined, and that is the human drive to develop and maintain the self. And now the urge to maintain a self 
outweighs all these other things. So, for instance, uh, you can be, uh, uh, as a woman, you can be at the peak of your hormonal frenzy, meaning at some point in your ovulatory cycle, you experience some biological increment in sexual drive. But when you are at that peak, driven by hormones, and if I've treated you badly for the last three weeks, when you're in this heightened state of arousal, we don't have sex. Because how you think I'm treating you and how you think I'm seeing you outweighs any kind of sex drive you have. And if you're still horny, you'll take care of it by yourself. And so the human self and the issues of selfhood in couples, which nobody anticipates because it's never been looked at like this before, is what invariably causes normal healthy couples to have sexual desire problems and handled well going through that gridlock, holding on to the four points of balance, are what help you develop a self out of your sexual difficulties. And the crucible four points of balance are the pillars of the human self. So if you don't have a solid, flexible self, you ain't got much of a self because you don't have any core values. If you can't quiet your mind and calm your heart, you're not going to have much of a self because you're going to be simply so controlled by your emotions that there isn't going to be any stability to what you're doing that lines up with your sense of integrity. If you are overreacting all the time to everything that's going on, you're not going to have much of a self. And if you're not willing to have meaningful endurance and tolerate discomfort for growth, you're never going to accomplish any of your goals. And the self has goals. So this is the incredible way that differentiation and selfhood are built into emotionally committed relationships, but the ride is a lot tougher and a lot less ideal than many of us would like to picture it. One thing that I think might be helpful and interesting would be to hear in your own life how this process of differentiation in relationship has manifested. Maybe a challenge that you had related to having this solid but flexible self and how you went through it. Well, I must tell you, Tammy, the reason I joke that I need to write a book that says how to struggle on $10 million, because everything I write about, I end up having to live, and if that's going to be the case, I might as well write about something like struggling with $10 million. Make it $100 million while you're at it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll split it between us. Okay. Um, one of the things that made passionate marriage popular, and we know this now from reader feedback, was the fact that uh, Ruth and I were willing to disclose the fact that differentiation doesn't make you perfect and it doesn't sanitize you and you still have the same problems that everybody else has, you just handle them a lot better. And so in my relationship with Ruth, one of the things that I wrote about in Passionate Marriage was the time where Ruth wanted to have a baby much more than I did. And when we first got together, we had an agreement which was um, I didn't want to have a baby that I would end up regretting, and if I was going to have regrets, I'd rather not have the baby and regret that. And so I explained that to Ruth. She agreed. And um, time went on, and Ruth was saying more and more she wanted to have a baby, and I said, no, we had this agreement. And Ruth was taking birth control pills at that time. And she looked at me and she said, okay, I'm going to stick to our agreement, but I'm not taking birth control anymore because this is crazy. I want to have a baby. If you don't want to have a baby, you use birth control. Well, this just really ticked me off. Uh, 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 My initial reaction was not, oh, that's wonderful how differentiated of you. You're standing up for yourself. It was, what the hell do you mean? You're shaking up the boat. I don't appreciate this, and I don't like using condoms. And, um, you know, why don't you just keep taking it? It's easier for both of us if you just take the pills. You know, it doesn't kill our sexual satisfaction that much. And um, Ruth said no. And that really pissed me off. And it also made me respect her. And I had this paradoxical reaction of, on the one hand, being angry at her, and on the other hand, having more and more 
uh, demonstration that Ruth was the kind of person that I wanted to have a baby with if I was going to have it with anybody. And so I started thinking, okay, well, uh, let's have a baby. And then I had to do another thing that comes with differentiation was I had to confront myself about was I just selling out? Was I going to have a baby because I simply didn't want the pain of using uh, 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 condoms and I also didn't want the pain of uh, having a vasectomy? And I went through that and I struggled with that for some time and finally decided that indeed I did want this child. And I have to say that our daughter is probably one of the most deliberately conceived child in the history of the human race. And I think that's also why she's so absolutely wonderful. If I had had a child uh, when I was younger, um, I don't think Sarah would be the person that she is today. So that's how Ruth and I have lived it out as well. And there are many other ways that comes up between us as well. One of the points you make in Passionate Marriage that I think is so interesting is that we don't go through a process of differentiation once, that it's a continual process in our relationship, and that specifically as we become closer and closer to our partner and more at risk of losing them, more a sense of the level of loss we would have if they died or if something happened to the relationship, that that actually requires greater differentiation, the more in love or attached we might be. And I wonder if you can talk some about that. Well, now you've made me settle down. Um, I hear a lot of people talk about the idea that it's not just a, a, a once-through process. Um, and actually, it's more like a helix where you return to the same point, but at a higher level as your level of differentiation is increasing. But you've touched on something that a lot of people don't really talk about that does involve that going through it repeatedly, which is as you become more involved, more invested, as both of you uh, become better differentiated, uh, and as both of you become much more unique people and irreplaceable to each other, that that alone drives the process of differentiation. And so it isn't just our pain and the fact that our relationship is lousy that will do it. It also works on the top end as well. And so as couples get older and more mature, as they spend time together, they do have to learn to counterbalance the incredible investment that they have with each other with being able to hold on to themselves, being able to soothe themselves, um, because eventually one of you is going to bury the other. And if you can't take that hit, then you will do what many of us do, which is you'll withdraw from your partner as you get older so that by the time they're dead, the loss isn't that great. Mm -hmm. But if you really have respect for what it means to love somebody and you really want to see what human beings have been able to do to have relationships that really do border on something spiritual, um, then you've got to pay your dues and you better have strong four points of balance. And you do go through this. Uh, you go through this when uh, your wife develops breast cancer. You go through this when you lose a family business or you're out of work and you, you, the funds aren't there or your child gets ill. But I'm watching this happen now and I'm sort of awestruck watching my parents go through this. My parents both just celebrated their 89th birthday, and they have been married for over 65 years. And I'm fortunate to have two parents that are alive, but I must say I am completely intimidated when I contemplate both of them looking at each other, knowing that at some point one of them will not be here. And it's not just an idle or abstract idea. And for them to continue to love each other on life's terms is an absolutely awesome thing to me. 
So if I'm lucky, I'm watching now what Ruth and I will go through. And I think that's also why a lot of people don't have these kinds of amazing relationships, because the price of success is so high. The price being facing that loss, actually having to go through that loss, so we defend ourselves against it by not really opening, not really being there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, if you're going to really love somebody and have that much time invested, I mean, 65 years together, and all their friends are dead now, and they are the only two, and they are the people who now, they store the memories and keep them alive, including of each other. And so to love like my parents love, I think I'm very, very lucky to have those kinds of parents, is a real act of integrity. And you better be able to take care of your own heart. You you better be able to uh, uh, have a real core sense of values and not bail out like a lot of people do. Now, it's interesting you use the word integrity. It's a real act of integrity. That's an interesting use of that word. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of people think integrity is you don't steal. Um, but integrity is its the internal consistency of the self. You know, before there was a human self, nobody had integrity because there wasn't any integrity to lose. So... When we do our work, we often talk about integrity in the crucible approach, and people are often stunned to hear it used this way uh, because they they never think of themselves as possibly lacking in integrity, meaning they're not internally consistent. Their values don't line up with their, their other values or, or what they do. And one of the things that emotionally committed relationships always do is they challenge your integrity. And one of the things that people don't realize is, particularly early in relationships, one partner can always force the other to choose between either staying married or keeping their integrity. And your partner can put it to you, and often does, where you really feel like your integrity is on the line. And because people have always thought about marriage as run by attachment and safe havens, the idea that you could go through this soul-twisting, gut-wrenching crucible where it really does test what kind of integrity do you have. People just don't anticipate it, but it's built into the heart of emotionally committed relationships. Your children will make you, will challenge your integrity. Your children will push you to basically try to cut corners or uh, give them slack or violate your values or things like that. Uh, and so there are integrity and challenges built all throughout married life and family life. And when you have an approach like we do that mainstreams this, with you, it, this isn't just, you. well, if you hit an issue of integrity or morality, you have to go run and see a clergy person. Uh, this is well within what emotionally committed relationships do. That's why I like working with them. And this is also what apparently people like about the passionate marriage tape and book, that it talks to them in a way that they're not used to thinking. And when they hear something like this, it opens up tremendous opportunities for them to live a much better marriage and a much better life. So going back to the idea of your parents married 65 years, when you say it takes tremendous integrity to stay supremely open-hearted when there's this risk of loss, can you still help me understand what you mean by that? What's the integrity there? Well, let's see. My, uh, uh, my mother has had several major surgeries. My father has had uh, both hips replaced. Uh, the divorce rate among marriages where there is a serious illness is astronomical. The divorce rate among cancer patients, there are a lot of people they drop like flies. They're just, they're just poorly differentiated. They don't have enough inside them to hold on to their values. They can't soothe their heart. They're worried about, uh, uh, quote, being abandoned. They're thinking maybe there's somebody better out there. And those marriages, particularly when they're under stress, they break up. But other marriages get better 
because it stretches people's integrity. It stretches what do you believe in. And as I said, if you can't, you, you can have all the values in the world, but if you can't keep your emotions under control, you still won't have any integrity. And if you're not willing to do hard things, you won't have any integrity. If you're overreacting to everything, you can't stay consistent with what your real goals are. So integrity is something that's terribly important to human beings. Not all of us, when we're not well-developed, but the better developed you get, the more integrity becomes important to you and the more integrity you actually develop. And then keeping that integrity intact is about keeping your sense of self intact. And that's what human beings are driven to do because it's wired into the evolution of the species in our brain. When you realize this is, it finally comes down to it gets tested with your capacity to love on life's terms. There are a lot of people I see, they have a child who's mongoloid. They have a child who's deaf. They have a child with cerebral palsy. And they often go through the feelings of, I wish I had a different kid. Why'd this have to happen to me? They, there's lots of research, and the families that actually do better and survive these kinds of things are the kinds of families that are willing to have the feelings that I'm describing, which are less than ideal. The ones that try to keep a stiff upper lip, the too rigid, and they fracture. And so being able to hold on to yourself and acknowledge these difficult feelings for, for people, uh, including the people that you love, and love them in spite of them, stick around in spite of them, go through the hard things, these are acts of integrity, and so even loving kids, uh, we think maybe we don't like, love our spouse, but we always love our kids. Uh, the families of children who are seriously ill also <clears throat> break up at a very, very high rate. So my parents had to do that, too. And so they were challenged, and they stayed together when others of their peers broke up, and we certainly see this in our age group, uh, and it happens in every generation. People walk away from families. Um, one of the things that I have learned through my years of therapy that have really made me hold strongly to a differentiation approach as opposed to an attachment-based approach is the realization that basic decency is not something that we can take for granted. It is sublime. We need to encourage it. We need to respect it. We need to reward it and encourage it every way we can. But there are many, many people who do not come from decent parents. They do not come from decent families. And so basic decency is something that I no longer take for granted, but basic decency is the kinds of things that my parents demonstrate. And this is why a childlike approach or approach that reduces adults to children, which is very, very common in pop psychology, is an anathema as far as I am concerned, because we're not children. We may act like children, but we're not perpetual children. And the hallmark of truly being an adult and also truly being a spiritual person is the ability to hold on through difficult times and Ironically, you don't have to be a saint. You don't have to see a burning bush, and God doesn't have to give you the Ten Commandments. All you've got to do is form an emotionally committed relationship, and the Great Oneness will visit you with all the normal, healthy, difficult problems that bedevil couples who simply want to stay together, love each other, and have decent sex and raise a family, like my family did. Now, you use this phrase a couple times, holding on to yourself. What do you mean by that? Holding on to yourself and the four points of balance are one and the same. Solid, flexible self. The ability to regulate your own emotional uh, life. Uh, quiet mind, calm heart, which is also emotional autonomy. That's holding on to yourself. The ability to regulate your own emotions. And the interesting thing there is... If you want a stable relationship, the hallmark of stability in a relationship is not holding on to your partner. That makes the relationship rigid. It turns out stability in an emotionally committed relationship resides in the individuals, the individual's ability to hold on to themselves. 
And so the irony is when you often let go of your partner, stop trying to get your validation, your identity, your reflected sense of self, and your soothing from your partner, and you learn to hold on to yourself, including not overreacting and meaningful endurance, those are the last two points of balance, that is the holding on to yourself, and that is what allows you to have a better time and a more stable time holding on to your partner. So if you listen to the things that you and I are talking about, they actually all fit together. They're one and the same. They're just different aspects of looking at the prism of the reflected light of relationships where you just see it parceled out into all its pieces. But holding on to yourself is one of the unique things about human beings, that we are self-soothing animals. And infants have the ability to self-soothe albeit in rudimentary form, almost from the start of life, if not in utero. And so uh, we are self-soothing animals, and we are able to control our own emotionality. We are able to control our own minds. That's certainly what meditation is all about. And that ability to hold on to ourselves is what gives you the basis for having a close, stable, intimate, and rewarding, and also growing, living relationship with another human being. You know, I think related to this point is a very interesting comment that you made in Passionate Marriage, that in a well-differentiated couple, blame and criticism stop. And I was like, wow, blame and criticism stop, not slowly go away. But you actually used the word stop. Yeah. I am sure that there must be a moment where the Dalai Lama loses his magnificent control on himself, and he he has a thought where he's blaming somebody else, (laughs) maybe the Chinese. Um, The the best differentiated person, you, you know, we're not perfect. Um, and, and so when I say stop, I'm talking about couples that they're at each other's throats. They're just, they're gridlocked. They're contentious. They're belligerent with each other. That stops. Because the conflict shifts from between people to inside people. I think it was Teilhard Chardin who said, true spirituality is taking the max amount of angst into oneself and digesting it and making the world a better place. And that's what happens as people become more differentiated. Instead of keeping the anxiety between the people, forcing your partner to adapt and accommodate, and keeping the conflict between the two of you, you bring it into yourself. You shift from confronting your partner to confronting yourself. And the first move in a collaborative alliance is always confronting yourself first. And by confronting yourself and having the tension within you, the conflict between you and your partner stops. The blaming stops. And it's not ethereal. It's a very, very pragmatic process. And it really, really works. And it's one of the reasons why people are willing to tolerate a, a very direct adult approach. There are a lot of people say, look, uh, Dave, uh, you know, a lot of people, they, they want to hear that it can be easy. They're going to want to go to a therapist who tells them, yeah, it's childhood wounds and your partner should be there for you all the time. Why do they stick around when you're talking to them about self-confrontation and soothing yourself and learning to take care of yourself as part of loving somebody else? And the answer is, because people like the results. And it doesn't take uh, a lifetime to change this. Uh, you, you don't have to be Buddhist to have a good marriage where you hope there's reincarnation because it's going to take you two or three lives to get this thing worked out. You can do it in one life. And it really comes from the four points of balance and becoming more differentiated. And that's why the conflict stops. Also, as you stop seeing your partner as an extension of you uh, that's acting badly or that needs to be controlled, uh, that's wayward, you really begin to realize something that couples in emotionally committed relationships forget, even if they're going to the ashram each week, which is 
their partner is a sentient being. It's a lot easier to think the rest of the world is a sentient being, but when you've got a partner who you think is defying you, who doesn't like you sometimes, uh, who finds fault with you and is angry that you're not picking up your socks and you make a mess and you're difficult to live with, realizing that this other person is a sentient being and getting your anger and your animosity under control is really a big, big deal. And as you confront yourself, you are acutely aware of your own, not only your mortalities, but of being mortal in the sense of you have your own shortcomings. God knows you've got a lot of them. And as you see that more and more, I think you become more forgiving of other people's foibles, particularly the people that you're living with. And so um, that's why the conflict simply stops. Another reason it simply stops is you realize that not only you're wasting time, but if you have children, you realize your children are watching you. You cannot go into the bedroom and have a private fight. This idea of uh, you don't fight in front of the kids, you can forget it. Your kids map you out. They know you're fighting. And when you realize that uh, you're, you're educating your children about how marriage is supposed to be and you're really helping shape the kind of person that they're going to pick, when people realize that, it gives them a kick in the behind, and it really says, if you have any integrity, you can't have a war of attrition for 25 years. You need to get your act together. And that's another reason why the conflict stops. Now, David, I just have a couple more questions for you. This first one is just sort of circling back around and completing, I think, this discussion in a very grounded way, which is, let's say somebody's listening and when we started talking about being sexually dissatisfied, they thought to themselves, yeah, you know, I would like to be having more of X, Y, and Z. And the challenge here really is my partner. My partner is this way or that way. Or some type of blame or criticism came up in them about their partner and their current sexual level of activity and novelty. But they're listening to you and they're thinking, okay, David's recommending a different approach one that involves self-confrontation, self-soothing. How does that person work with that information? What do they do? Um, okay. Um, there, there are a lot of uh, different ways to do that. Um, some of them are going to be specifically in the sexual arena if they want to have good sex, and some of them are going to be more general. Um, I think... Uh, uh, particularly if we started off talking about sex, we ought to hit that one first. Uh, very often what you need to do is you've got to be able to sit down with your partner and have the conversation that nobody has. I've worked with lots of couples. They've been copulating or trying to copulate for 25 years, and they haven't talked about it one time. And so just talking about sex means you're going to have to apply the four points of balance. You're going to have to calm yourself down, not overreact, not over-anticipate your partner's rejection and things like that. And you need to talk from your heart as opposed to having your armor on. And um, being able to raise the topic straight and say, look, I'm not blaming. Um, actually, I want to raise this topic, and as I'm doing this with you, I'm also thinking about how am I complicit or what am I not doing in the instated quid pro quo that you and I have developed that allows the sex to stay bad? I'm thinking about that, and I'm really in the process of confronting myself about that. I'll even tell you what it is, and you lay it out. You will have your partner's undivided attention because they'll want to know how, how the alien stole their partner, and you showed up instead because <laughs> they know they have your mind map. Okay, and they know you're not thinking like you usually do. And that's not the words, it's the thoughts that gets their attention. So going and opening your mind and showing a different mind to your partner is one of the things that really gets that sex conversation going. And by the way, mind mapping is all described in intimacy and desire. So that's how the sex part starts. The other things more generally are... Uh, Going to your partner, and this can be in the sex conversation that says, look, I no longer believe in communal genitalia. 
I no longer believe your genitals belong to me. You're supposed to keep them ready and to go and give them to me whenever I want. I have learned the hard way that you belong to you, including your body. Your body belongs to you, too. I just hope when that's clear, you'll be more willing to share. Because people don't share when ownership is being contested. Letting your partner know that you really do see them as a separate entity from you is one of the best aphrodisiacs there is. Treating your partner with respect and confronting yourself in a way that is respect-worthy is also one of the best aphrodisiacs there is. Showing your partner that you recognize that sex is not just a bedroom behavior, but that you begin to understand that the issues that are surfacing in the sex, which are not just about are we going to do a new position, but are we going to grow as people? Are we going to always agree to live with each, in each other's limitations? Or are we going to have a relationship that is basically both of us agree that we don't want to live within our partner's limitations anymore and we expect each other to stretch, not just in the sex. And you demonstrate you're willing to, op- to go first and open an artery by confronting yourself about something that you know is true, your partner has told you for years it's true, and you finally acknowledge it and your partner's mind and mouth drops open because they can't believe you're doing this. Those are the kinds of things that if somebody has been listening to this whole conversation between you and I and they want to apply it, that's what you do. Another thing that you can do that really helps is you offer to do hugging to relax, which is uh, a long-duration 10-minute hug, which is described in Passionate Marriage, that really, really helps people settle down. Because so many people are so anxious during sex, and they've always been so anxious, they have no idea they're anxious because they've acclimated to it. And the only time they realize how much anxiety they're carrying in bed is when they finally slow down and settle down. And so when I help couples have better sex, most people think at first, you know, it's by going to a gym or getting a trapeze and doing athletic maneuvers. But the best sex that people ever have really is about finally having peace. Peace in the arms of somebody you love is really, for most people, the best sex you're ever going to have. And so by offering to do hugging to relax with your partner, it does so many things at once. It gives the two of you a chance to quiet down and settle down because uh, one-third of men have rapid ejaculation, which means if uh, they hug for 10 minutes, it's longer than most of them have ever had sex, and you can't relax in two and a half minutes. And when you say to your partner, I want to hold you, it challenges your partner's self-worth because they might know why you might want to have sex with them, but why on earth would you want to just hold them unless it's a come on for sex? And when it isn't, and it's just the two of you, for a lot of people, it touches their hearts, it blows their minds, and it really allows them to finally connect with a partner that they've never been able to do while their underwear is off. And so this is also differentiation because while you're standing there, you've got to calm yourself down. Initially, it's a little awkward. You're not used to that. You have to have meaningful endurance to get to the other side, to get to the sense of peace. And so when you put all these pieces together, somebody who's listening to this, who's going, hmm, you know, I'd like to have much better sex life. That sounds good to me. I'll take two helpings of that. It really is something that you can do in a very straightforward, pragmatic way, and it doesn't take forever. Wonderful. That's very helpful. So just one final question, David. Our program's called Insights at the Edge, and I'm always curious in people's personal life, so not so much your theoretical work, but really in your life, what an edge might be for you currently in your own growth and development that you might be willing to share with us. I know, can't help myself. Can't help myself. (laughs) 
think that might be the best laugh I've ever gotten yet on the program. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Terry, I got to tell you, that was seductive. <laughs> Have as much integrity as you want, only share what you want. It's perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for the laugh, and thank you for the wisdom and the clarity and for your pioneering work. I've been speaking with Dr. David Snarch. He's the creator of a two-session, very quick-paced, provocative, helpful, and practical program with Sounds True called Secrets of a Passionate Marriage, How to Increase Sexual Pleasure and Emotional Fulfillment in Committed Relationships. David, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure, Tammy. Thanks for having me. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Thank you.